Prior to serving here at Bayview Glen, I was actually part of a church plant. I was part of a team that started a new church here in North York. And that's where I met my wife. I remember coming into the very first meeting for this church plant. I opened the door and I saw her and I froze. I didn't do anything. I wasn't cool or suave. I saw her and I thought, oh my goodness, I I can't talk to her. I can't, I, I, can't, I can't talk to this woman. I cannot talk to her. I was worried that if I talked to her, I would say something dumb or weird and I would screw it up and I would ruin this once in a lifetime opportunity. And so I tried to avoid her as much as I could. But yet, you know, over the coming months, we had many conversations and somehow we were conveniently always sitting close by each other in the group. And so after a few months, I thought, okay, I'm going to ask her out. I'm going to ask her out on a date, but there's no way that she's going to say yes. Girls like her don't go out with guys like me, but I'm going to ask her on a date just for myself because I know that I can't let, you know, fear stop me from doing difficult things in life. So I'm going to ask her out. She's going to say no, but I will be better for it. So this was one afternoon. I was with a couple friends, uh, Connor Sweetman, Pastor Hannah Sweetman's husband. He was in the room. It's a couple guys and I told them, okay, I'm going to call her up on the phone and I'm going to be really suave. I'm going to say, Hey girl, uh, imagine that, but less creepy. Hey, hey, hey girl, do you want to go out, you know, for dinner sometime and have a drink and maybe do some dancing? I'm going to, I'm going to pitch it really nicely. Okay. So I called her up boop, 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 and she picked up. Hello. That's how she talks. And I said, Hey, uh, and then I froze and all my strategy went out the window and I said, um, do you, do, do you want to go out drinking sometime? Uh, and, and we can uh, dance and, and, uh, and stuff too. And she said, sure. And so we went out on that date and now we're married. That's how it works. Praise God. Do you have a great love story or do you know any cool ones? You know, how did your parents meet? My parents met because they were both teachers at the same school. And one day it was raining and my dad drove my mom home. The next day it wasn't raining, but he still drove her home. And now they're married. That's how that works. Uh, my wife's parents, they met because the father called the pastor of the local church and he said, are there any young men here suitable for my daughter? And they met and now they're married. That's how that works. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the greatest love stories of all time. The biggest little love story in the world. We're going to be looking at the Cinderella story of the Bible as part of our Advent series. During the series of Advent, we're looking at the women in the genealogy of Jesus. In the genealogy of Jesus listed in the beginning of Matthew, there's five women listed in here and we're looking at their stories. Who are they and how does God use them and redeem them? Last week we looked at Rahab and we saw this beautiful truth that we are not defined by our past, we are defined by our faith. That was Rahab last week. This week we're looking at Ruth the person of Ruth. And so to do so, would you please open your Bibles and go to the book of Ruth. It's this amazing story of family and friendship and life and death and going to new nations. And it's four chapters long, the book of Ruth. We're not going to read through the whole thing today. I'm going to summarize a lot of it and then we're just going to zoom in at different parts. So the book of Ruth opens in chapter one, situating it during the time of Judges. The, the book of Judges comes right before the book of Ruth. And it's saying this is kind of happening during that time period. And one of the themes, one of the reoccurring phrases in the book of Judges is this. It always says, everyone did what was right 
in his own eyes. And time after time, people are doing what are people are doing what they think is right in their own eyes. And because of this, Israel keeps going in these seasons and cycles of oppression, poverty, and ruin when they do what is right in their own eyes compared to what is right in the eyes of God. Okay, so it's being set in all of this chaos. And in the midst of it, the story of Ruth begins with five F's taking place in the first five verses. There is famine, there is family, there is fleeing, there is fear, and there are funerals. A family flees a famine in fear, and all they find are funerals. Okay, so let me explain this. There's this family, there's Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, and they live in Bethlehem. And there's a great famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is two words, Beth, which means house, and Lechem, which means bread, the house of bread, but there's not much bread to go around. There's a great famine in Bethlehem, and so these Israelites flee Bethlehem and go to the land of Moab. In the land of Moab are the Moabites. They are the descendants of Moab. Moab is the son of Lot. And if you remember that story in Genesis, Lot is a man who gets drunk in a cave. He impregnates his oldest daughter and she gives birth to Moab. And the Moabites are the sons of Moab. So the Moabites are kind of like Israel's inbred cousins. They did not like them. And for centuries, they're in harsh conflict and they're under the oppression of Moab. They, uh, the people of Moab did lots of wicked practices. They also sacrificed children. They also practiced child sacrifice. And in the midst of all this, these people from Israel, Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons go over to Moab, hoping to flee poverty and death. And when they go over to Moab, what they find is poverty and death. They go over there and they're so impoverished in the land of Moab that they sell their family land back in Bethlehem. They sell their family land, their ancestral heritage. They sell it. They're still in poverty. And the Limelech, the husband, dies and the two sons also die. So Naomi is left a widow and the two sons also married Moabite women. And these wives are also left as widows. So there's no men. It's just three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. These are the names of the three women. Okay, so they're in a dire circumstance. What do you do? We've got no family. Naomi decides that she's going to return home. She says, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, she says to them, you two stay here. You don't need to come back with me to Bethlehem. It's just kind of going to get messy. It's tricky. You're Moabites. You go back to Israel. This isn't going to be good. I'm going to go back there. You stay here. And they have some dialogue. There's some back and forth. Orpah decides to stay. And Ruth says, no, I'm coming with you. We're going to go back to Bethlehem together. Okay, so they go back to Bethlehem. It's a widow and an outcast, a Moabite and someone with more Israeli heritage. They go back there. They return broke and without husbands. And specifically for Naomi, this is challenging because she also had no land. She had no land and no family. And at that time, land and family were everything. Let me show you. It provided security. It provided income, financial security, and familial security. She had no security this way. These are two very vulnerable women. So Ruth says, I'm going to go out into the fields in Bethlehem, and I'm going to glean grain for us. Let me give a a little bit of cultural context to that. God's law stated at this time that landowners were not allowed to completely maximize their profits. 
It's, it's kind of an interesting concept. They weren't allowed to squeeze every single penny out of their crops, but they had to leave the grain on the edges of the field and also whatever grain was kind of dropped during the harvest, they had to leave that. And so the impoverished people in the land who were in need would be able to come and get this grain for themselves. And Naomi says, okay, I'm going to go out into these fields and I'm going to try and glean some of this grain that we can live on. It's very dangerous because she's a Moabite woman and she's bound to, almost guaranteed to receive mistreatment because of this. Okay, so this is Ruth. She comes back into this foreign land to be with Naomi. She's not going to abandon her. And once she goes there, she says, I'm going to go out and try and scrounge something up for us. And this is going to be dangerous. And so she goes to a field in Bethlehem. And this field happens to belong to a man named Boaz. This is where things get good. And Boaz comes into the scene. This is chapter two. And the dude is looking like a really good guy. You see him interacting with his staff, with the people working there, and he's being very kind to them, and they're kind back to him. And as he's working and doing these things, he notices something. He notices Ruth, and he says to one of his staff, who is she? Emphasis added on my part. And the staff member tells him, tells Boaz, this is Ruth. She's come back with her mother-in-law from Moab to Israel. She is a Moabite. She's serving her here. She's been here all day, working really hard, gathering grain. And fellas, we know that, you know, if you're, if you're interested in the grill, you do your background. You find out where they're from. You find out what they're like. You do your due diligence. Okay, so Boaz is doing his due diligence. And he approaches her. He walks out to her. And this is where they first meet. And he says, hey, girl. He was probably more smooth than me. But he says, hey, you don't need to clean to glean from the edges anymore. You can actually come right beside my staff. And as they're harvesting, you can glean right there. I've also told my men to leave you alone. No one's going to touch you. No one's going to harm you. You can rest whenever you want. You can take water from our cistern. And he continued to be generous to her for the rest of the day. And she asks him, why? Why are you, a man from Israel, a man from Bethlehem, being kind to me, a woman from Moab? This is what he says to her in chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done. He's talking about how she came with Naomi. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And they sat together. They had a nice lunch. Something is cooking here. Ruth comes home swooning to Naomi, carrying as much grain as she possibly can. And she shows her, look all that I got today. Naomi says, oh, my, my daughter, this isn't gleaning. Where, where were you gleaning? And she says, Boaz. I was in the fields of Boaz. Naomi tells her in chapter 2, verse 20, this man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers. Here's another interesting cultural point of interest. Leviticus 5, pardon me, Leviticus 25 talks about this. Lots of Leviticus, lots of Deuteronomy breaks these things down. Uh, basically, in these times, as I said, your land and your family was everything. 
You didn't usually marry for love. You married so you could have an offspring. You married so you could have a lineage. You married so your family name could be continued. This was also your retirement. Your security came from your family, your children as well. That was your provision. And land was also tied to sustenance and provision. This was your crops, your livestock. This is a source of income for you as well as just survival. And God provides ways for families and for land to be redeemed to those who've lost it. The first example of this is simply the example of leveret marriage. That's what we call today. This is where the brother of a deceased man would marry the widow. So if, if you're, you're a husband and you pass away, your brother would marry your wife. But the catch is the children that came from the two of them would continue on your name not your brother's name. So this is a way to stop a line from dying out. That's one example. The second provision is through what's called a kinsman redeemer, a goel. This was the term in, in Hebrew for it. When Israel and Joshua came into this land, we were talking about with Ruth, uh, with Ruth, with Rahab last week, all of the land was divided up into the families. And when a family was in a time of severe poverty, they might sell it, as we just saw with Elimelech and Naomi. They would sell this. God put into place, though, a cycle, a cycle of redemption, a cycle of liberation. It was called the year of Jubilee. And every 50 years, all debts would be erased, all land would go back to the original families, and all slaves would be set free. But 50 years is kind of a long time to wait. It can be a long time to live in this poverty. And so we put in another provision, the kinsman redeemer, that land could be bought back that was once sold. However, this land could only be bought back by someone within the family. So this was to keep land within the family itself. So there were two forms of this. And the term redeem just means to gain, to regain, to purchase back. And so when Naomi hears that Ruth was with Boaz, she says, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's someone related to Naomi. He, if he so wished, could purchase back this land and redeem their family line as well. This is, timing is so perfect. The man of her dreams, the man of Ruth's dreams, is able to redeem her material circumstances. Naomi tells her, okay, this is, this is basically like T-ball. This is, this is ready for us. This is a home run. You need to go for broke. You need to go all in. You need to make a move on this. And so she tells Ruth, Naomi's the, the, the scheming mother-in-law, hypothetically, and tells her, hey, He's out on the threshing floor. He's working, he's working with the grain. When he falls asleep, go to him. Clean yourself up, wash, anoint yourself. So Ruth does that. She prepares herself, gets all clean, looking good, goes down. And once Boaz has fallen asleep, she goes to him. She uncovers his feet. I assume there's a blanket. She peels it back and she lays down. Not too long after, Boaz wakes up. Hey, hey, what? Who, 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 who touched my feet? Who are you laying there? It was dark in the room. When Boaz asks this, Ruth responds, chapter 3, verse 9. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She's proposing to him. She's saying, redeem me, marry me, and buy back the land in Naomi's name. And fellas, wouldn't, wouldn't that be great if that's how it worked? <laughs> In this case, this was how it had to happen. The woman had to propose this offer in this time. 
And the cost of redemption for Boaz, it would be enormous. Because one, he would have to take on the land and also the cost of this. And he would have to marry the family member whom it belonged to and raise up children. However, Naomi, she's too old. She's barren. So he can't continue the, the, the family line through her. He would have to take in Naomi as well, but he would have to marry Ruth and continue on the line of a Moabite family. So he would have to buy this land. He would have to bring in a wife and her mother-in-law and continue on a family line of the people of God. And what does he do? Boaz says yes. He has to talk to, uh, there's another kinsman that's more closely related. He talks to him, he works it out. But Boaz agrees to be the redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. He is the formal redeemer. He is the great bridegroom. He takes on the debt of the family. He marries her. And the minute that he marries Ruth, all of his wealth becomes hers. All of his possessions, all of his inheritance are immediately split with her, immediately, legally, and automatically. So not only are the debts forgiven, but a new life is given. He is the great redeemer, Boaz. And this fairy tale, this this true fairy tale, has a perfect ending. Let's read just the last, uh, not the last two verses, two of the last verses in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Yes. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more precious to you than seven sons has given birth to him. The book of Ruth it then finishes with the genealogy. It shows how Ruth and Boaz gave birth to Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, King David, the great king of Israel. And through David's line would then come Jesus. So Ruth, the Moabitess, is part of the long line of the family of Jesus. What an incredible story. There's so much here that can be seen and learned from. Uh, I, think, I think this may be the most challenging sermon I've made yet because there's so many good things and it was so hard to decide what to keep in and what to keep out. So you, for the month of December, you could do worse than studying the book of Ruth as your personal time of study with God. Okay, so I was looking at the story of Ruth and trying to find out what's the most dramatic thing that happens in this. And I think the most dramatic thing that happens is the transformation. Ruth's transformation. She goes from a widow in Moab to a wife in Bethlehem. And what is the secret of Ruth's transformation? Ruth's transformation, it seems to come from two things, her obedience and her faithfulness. Ruth's transformation came from obedience and faithfulness. And what did that come from? That came from her radical imperative of discipleship. She put following God and being with his people above all else. And we'll see how this comes out in many ways, but this impacts her friendships, her friendship with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and it also impacts how she overcomes cultural barriers, hurdles in her culture at the time. The message of Ruth is this. It's not that if you follow God, you're going to get everything that you want. The message of Ruth is this. 
If you give up your definition of a good life and you give your life to God, He will give it back to you, different than how you gave it to Him, and better, not just good, but better, not according to your definition of a good life, but according to His. It will be great. And that doesn't mean more comfortable on this earth. It doesn't mean if you follow God, you're going to get a hunk of a husband and a great family and land and money. There's many Christians who follow God faithfully and obediently and have challenging lives on earth. We kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 8. But all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What we see in Ruth is this radical imperative of discipleship. If something is imperative, it trumps everything else. And this is imperative for Ruth. She will say, I am going to obey and I don't expect a good life. Why? She chooses to follow Naomi. We're going to get into this in five minutes. But in doing so, she's leaving her homeland. She's leaving her family and the security there. She's probably leaving the land that her family has, I'm assuming, but also any prospects of a suitor, a man who could take her in as her new husband. She's leaving all of that behind. She's going to a land with a woman who has nothing to a country of her enemies, where she's guaranteed to be treated more worse. And so she's immigrating to a new country, which already takes a lot of courage, but she's not expecting a better life. How many immigrants do you know go through the hardship of uprooting themselves and going somewhere else, but not expecting a better life? Everyone goes to a new country because you expect another life. She says, I don't expect another life. I just want an opportunity to obey. If the Lord is her Lord, then she can put no conditions on her obedience. And for many of us today, we might approach religion and Christianity saying, yeah, I'll follow God if this happens. I'll follow God if it makes me more happy. I'll follow God if it makes me more comfortable. I'll follow God if it helps with my career, gets me a family. What is your if? The thing is, whatever the condition is for you following God, I'll follow God if this thing happens, that is actually what you're seeking. That is your God, and you're using God to get to the thing that you want. Do you see that Ruth does not have conditions? She's saying she did not expect a better life. She says, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely if I expect a better life, which she says to Naomi that we're going to get to in just one second. She says, I take my hand off the wheel. I just want an opportunity to obey. So the question today I could ask you is this, is God sovereign or your goals, your conditions? What is the thing you're chasing? What is the thing that affects all of your decisions? What is the God in your life? The bridge from difficulty to blessing in the life of Ruth is obedience and faithfulness. Ruth gave her life to God and he transformed it into something different and something better than she ever could have imagined. And this shows up in her friendships and how she overcomes cultural barriers. So let's first look at how Ruth interacted with the people immediately in her life, in her friendship with Naomi. The transformation showed itself uh, in this way. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is when Naomi is saying to Orpah and Ruth, don't come with me to Bethlehem. Just leave me. You guys stay here and have a good life. She says to her this, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. So I'm going to join your people 
and I'm going to join your God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. If any other conditions separate me from you, from pursuing this life. And when it says the Lord in this verse, this isn't the, you know, Elohim, kind of the general term for God at the time. She's actually using the name, well, it's the letters Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, as we might say. And this is the name that Moses was given by God in the encounter at the burning bush in Exodus. He says, this is the name that my covenant people shall use to relate to me as. This is my personal relational name. And she uses this term. I am going to be part of your people and you are going to be my God. So she's using this term of wanting to join God's people and wanting to join with God himself. Question, why would she do this? It's certainly inconvenient and it doesn't look like materially this is going to maximize her conditions. Why would she make this radical change and join the God of Naomi? Scholars and pastors, they kind of hypothesize about this, but one of the proposed solutions is simply that Ruth saw the example of Christianity, of the God of Israel, in Naomi herself. She watched her suffer faithfully during this season, in this challenging time, in this place, during this famine and losing her husband and two sons. And she says, I want that God. I want the God that sustains you through these seasons. You know your in-laws. She knew her. She saw her. You can tell if your if your family, if the people around you are legitimate people of integrity and character, or if they're just fair-weathered friends. And she saw this and she said, this is what I want. So this is a little bit of conjecture, but there seem to be good reasons for this. So not only does first Naomi transform Ruth's life, but then Ruth transforms Naomi's life. Why? She knows, Ruth knows that if she stays, She has economic and familial security. She has provision. There's men there who can be her suitor and can bring her in. But she also knows that if she stays there, then perhaps her faith will die. She has to be with the people of God if she wants to be with God himself. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She knows that if she stays where she will be great, familially, familially, in terms of her family and in material conditions, then she will suffer spiritually. And she also knows that if Naomi goes back alone, she will probably suffer. She will probably wither. Maybe she will die as well. She's got no family. She's got no land as well. But if they go back together, Ruth and Naomi, to Bethlehem, there's a chance she will survive. If she stays, Naomi will perish. But if Naomi is to get her life back, Ruth must give up hers. If she's to have a name and a land and progeny, Ruth has to give up her name her land, and her family as well. And she does so. She impoverishes herself so that Naomi can be redeemed from her circumstances. She becomes the alien and the stranger in the land. She becomes accursed in this place so that Naomi can be redeemed or have the possibility of redemption from her conditions as well. Ruth gives up her name so that Naomi can have one. And this is why at the end in chapter 4 it says, Her daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. Naomi's poverty and marginalization are restored at the end of the book. And I'm I'm worried that we we hear this and we think, okay, need to be a good friend, move along, next point, and we don't get it. I don't get it. I don't think you get it. Friendship is one of the, the few and the most powerful ways that you can actually influence and transform someone's life 
during your time on earth. We're caught up in doing all these other things of how we want to change the world and make these differences in culture, but that's only the artillery. Friendship is the infantry. Friendship is where all of these things are used up and take place as well. Why? Truth needs to be lived. And friendship is one of the places where this is lived out. It's not just something that is thought, it's something that is walked as well. And friendship is one of the gifts that God gives us to sanctify each other as iron sharpens iron. So as it says, we can only have a few friends in our lives. And there's some of the few people that you can see God's transformation in. And what is a friend? Time and constancy. Those are the two things that we say that we see here. She says, I'm going to be with you. I will be with your people. Your God will be my God. I'm going to devote myself to you, to loving you. And may God deal with me ever so severely if I let anything but death stop me from this. Who needs a friend during this season in your life? Who are friends that you can reconnect with during this time? Who's in your circle, your surrounding? Ruth was able to practice such radical friendship and generosity because she gave her life to God and she said, these people will be my people and these uh, and their God will be my God. Do you have a people group in your life that you have given yourself to? Do you have a church that you've given yourself to? A body of believers that you've given yourself to? Or do you just kind of cruise through the Sundays of the month? Oh, I'll just come here. I'll you know, music, and I'll listen to the talk, and then I'll go home. Maybe I won't go there for a month. I'll check out this place. Just permanently church shopping, church hopping. Could Bayview Glen be that place where you put in roots and you start to do life with people? Or another church. It doesn't have to be Bayview. We're happy to be that for you if you need a spot as well. This is the importance of life groups. We're not just pushing life groups and the availability of it and the importance of it as a nice little side thing. Doing life with other believers is imperative for Christian fellowship. If you are not walking in this, you are not walking in all that God has for you. Who are your friends? Who needs a friend during this time? Who are you doing life with? And how is God calling you to show his love, his grace, his mercy, his loyalty to them during this season? Just like Ruth modeled with Naomi. So that's the first thing. Ruth's transformation can be seen in her friendships, how she interacts with those immediately around her. This is the first place you see Ruth's transformation. Second, we can see her transformation in how she overcomes cultural barriers. All cultures have practices, they have values and valuations, traits, the ways of showing what's desirable, what's normative, what is to be done, what's governing. Sometimes these practices are good, sometimes these practices are bad. Either way, they're not God. And it's dangerous when we let these practices and norms govern us more than Jesus does himself. So at the end of Ruth, the local women say to Naomi, right? She's holding the the grandbaby and all the other ladies flock around. Nothing's changed. And they say to her, wow, the love that Ruth has shown to you is better than seven sons. That's not really resonating with you? That's because we don't, we don't get the culture at the time. Seven sons was a synonym for the perfect family. This term of seven sons, seven is a number of perfection. Seven sons is a perfect family. This is used in the Bible many times, the seventh son even. Uh, but in these cultures, family was everything. It was legacy, it was security, it was retirement, it was income. Family was everything. 
However, what's being shown here, these women are saying to Naomi, is that the grace of God in a person's life and your relationship with them where that grace is activated is more satisfactory, fulfilling, and transformative than even the perfect family. What's further, daughters were thought of as less than sons. Women in that culture were less than men. Men were the ones who had access to power. These are the ones who had access to opportunity. These are the ones who had access to force. Sons were more desired. This is still probably in some parts of the world today. If you wanted power, you would have more sons. And the gospel challenges that too. There's practices that say family is everything. Gospel knocks that down. The practice that says men are everything knocks that down as well. The love of a faithful sister, sister sister-in-law, a friend, it's more precious than seven sons. And the final thing that's knocked down is this, that your race is everything. The concept of stay in your own culture. Here we see an interracial marriage and an interracial friendship. Uh, Boaz is free to show love to Ruth, even though she's from Moab. And the Bible says that unless God is the center of your life, You're going to be defined by culture or defined by having the perfect family. You're going to kill yourself to get these things. But when God's grace comes in, you are freed from that. This is what's being shown in the story of Ruth. And you may listen to this. You may read this and think, I'm not held captive by these ancient archaic norms of needing to have families and kids to, you know, be fulfilled in my life. I'm freed from that. I'm freed from this patriarchy. Perhaps you're freed from these ideas. But unless you know God, you're not free. You may not be bound to pursuing the perfect family, but you're bound by other pursuits. Maybe the perfect body. Maybe the perfect career. Maybe the perfect reputation or social schedule. You need to be with the right groups and the right people. And you're going to look down upon and sneer at other people in other circles, just like how they looked upon, looked down upon people from other races, you will hate those who come from different intellectual circles, people of other classes in the same way. So you're free from, yes, the, the troubles of the culture in Ruth's day, but you're going to be bound by the troubles of the culture of your day. And the gospel comes and it breaks it all apart. It says, if God is in the center of your life, it's better than all of these things. When the gospel's in your life, you get rid of the condescension towards people of other genders, other races, and other classes. Why? You're free in your heart and therefore free in your relationships. You're not hung up on getting it. You're not hung up on not having it. The barrier-breaking power of grace is shown in these ancient times in the transformation that happened in the life of Ruth. Things fall into their place and you're free to move out of your own circles. So in this story of Ruth, this radical transformation that happens in her heart when she chooses to follow the God of Israel. She says, I don't expect my circumstances to be better. I just want communion with you. And that allows her to be a powerful, life-changing friend and also to overcome the cultural pressures to pursue family, relationships, marriage, financial security, ethnic purity as the highest goods as well. She was changed in the heart and therefore changed in her relationships. So let's bring it in. How are you feeling right now? Feeling pretty good? Hey, you know, preacher guy, you can just wrap this up, get on to the next point and we'll get home to Swiss Chalet. I don't feel good reading this. I feel crushed. There's no way I can be like Ruth. 
I'm not that nice of a person. I'm really not. I'm, I'm nice for 30 minutes once a week. That's it. This is what you see. This is the best. I'm not like Boaz. I don't have property. This is Toronto. Let's be honest. Okay, no one's got property. No one my age, at least. <laughs> I don't have the love. I don't have the generosity. I don't have the perseverance. I can't do this unless, unless you know the real Redeemer. I can't do this unless I know the real Redeemer. And if you don't know the real Redeemer, you will never be able to follow the example of Ruth and Boaz. And who is this Redeemer? He is your Redeemer. You have a Redeemer. The real Redeemer is the child born in Bethlehem many generations later. He looks like his predecessors. Like Ruth, he left his father in the throne above. Like Boaz, he not only paid your debt, but he unites with you. Like Boaz, he is our kinsman. He comes to us. He's not just in heaven. He doesn't just send down a scroll with a couple good points on how to live, but he comes and lives with us. This is the story of Christmas. He comes to our place in our likeness. He's the perfecter of our faith. He lives the life that we cannot live. He is the one who is ultimately distance. He condescended himself. He became a curse for our sake. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become his righteousness. Like Boaz, he unites with us to pay off our debts, to redeem us, to ransom us from this. And now we receive his inheritance. We receive all of his blessings and privileges, and we receive right standing with God in his eyes. Like Boaz, he covers us. He covers our sin and he wraps us in his righteousness. Greater than Boaz and greater than Ruth, Jesus didn't say like Ruth, let nothing but death stop me. He said, no way, I'm not even going to let death stop me from loving you. He is the greater Ruth. He is the greater Boaz, not just the redeemer of this story, but the redeemer of all stories, of my story and of your story. You have a redeemer. Guess what? Also, you have a great love story. You. And that doesn't matter if you're married or not, if you're single or not. You have a great love story. You have a God who pursues you, who redeems you, who adorns his body, his church in splendor like a bride. And only if you see him as this, only if you recognize Jesus as your redeemer, 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 can you live like Ruth and Boaz. Be the good friend and break through the cultural barriers. If you just try and emulate these people, just, ah, they look cool, what would Boaz do? Make a bracelet. You won't have the joy to push on and you won't have the patience and peace and perseverance to regroup when you fail. You'll try to prove yourself, but unless you see that these people are pointing to the ultimate redeemer, that he's covered you, that all of his wealth is now yours, his righteousness is yours, until you have this kind of joy and peace, you will never be able to live like Ruth and Boaz. It doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how marginal you are. Doesn't matter what people group, what background, what reputation you come from. Doesn't matter how little you have. Ruth had her faith and she followed a widowed old woman into a nation where she was guaranteed to be mistreated. So the message of Ruth is not that if you follow God, you're gonna get all that you want. That is not the message of Ruth. The message of Ruth is this, that if you take your life if you give up your definition of the good life and you give your life to God, he will take it, he will transform it, and he will give it back to you. 
better than what you expected, different than what you expected, but greater than any of your standards or expectations or definitions, better than seven sons. So for the the Christian here today, as we study Ruth and her example, where do you need to walk in obedience and faithfulness? Following the example of Ruth and Boaz through our great Redeemer, as you relate to others individually, your friendships during this time, but also culturally and collectively, where are we acting according to definitions in Canada of the good life rather than God's? Where do we need to walk in obedience and faithfulness? And how can we bring this to Jesus and ask him to redeem us once again? And for the non-believer today, you're watching this because, you know, maybe you just stumbled across this online somehow. Do you know your Redeemer? Do you know the one who came to us, who paid the price to redeem us from our sin? Romans says that the wages of sin are death, but he took our death upon himself. He died in our place so that we could have his life. Do you know your Redeemer today? Would you respond to him? Would would you let him adorn you with his righteousness and his love? Would you think about this? Would you ask him to make himself aware to you today? And for Bayview Glen as a whole, final question. Are we marked as a people group who claim the name of Christ, but we simply replicate all of the failings of our culture. We love the wrong things. We value the wrong things. We treat people according to their group status and we fall into this intellectual tribalism. Is that how we're marked? Or are we marked by people passionately pursuing the imperative of discipleship, of following Jesus and of loving him and modeling this in our relationships with those around us and being freed from the harmful cultural practices in our presence. Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus shows that God can redeem anyone. In Rahab, we see it's not your past that defines you, it's your faith that defines you. And in Ruth, we see that if you give your life to God, he will transform it for the better. So may we be marked as people who have given all to God and who are marked by his transformation in this season.